The title of the talk tonight is Mindfulness is More Than Paying Attention. And this is partly in response to the popularization of mindfulness and the decontextualizing of mindfulness from its root tradition and um, uh, a flurry of articles from the Huffington, Huffington Post and other places about McMindfulness, <laughs> which was a critique of um, people like me who are teaching mindfulness in corporations and other institutions, and uh, this fear of the dumbing down of mindfulness or the commercialization of mindfulness or the commodif commodification of mindfulness, um, which is all probable. <laughs> um, Western culture, capitalist culture, tends to gobble up and spit out anything that it sees for its advantage, and mindfulness is no different than anything else. And as you see, there's a huge... Um, uh, interest in mindfulness and, uh, and, uh, and greater accessibility and reach uh, in schools and prisons <coughs> and in business and in psychology and healthcare and whatnot. And which is wonderful because these practices of awareness are incredibly powerful, incredibly liberating, and uh, help an enormous amount of people. Um, work with their own minds and hearts and situations and suffering. And uh, at the same time, there's, you know, when it, whenever anything becomes mass um, marketed, you could say, mass produced, uh, widely available, then there's an inevitable uh, chance for misinterpretation and uh, misunderstanding and Know, people teaching that haven't really had thorough training, you know, in the in, the, in this tradition, <laughs> generally people only start teaching at the invitation of their teacher, and that usually has necessitated s some substantive um, long-term relationship with the teacher. It's often, you know, decades sometimes a practice, um, but of course now you can just do an online course and then start teaching. <laughs> well, not even do an online course, just read a book. Um, and so there's various uh, fears, and, and rightly so, that, you know, that the depth and the scope of the teaching is being, and the subtlety, is being missed. So I'm not particularly speaking to that tonight, although I could go on a long rant. <laughs> Uh, but I'm just speaking to a, a piece of it, which is uh, helping to remember the broader um, spectrum of the place that mindfulness is embedded within the tradition and within the teachings. And all the various concomitant related factors of mind that go to support this quality of mindful awareness that we are working to establish in our lives. So I'm going to um, thread 
throughout this talk my time up in the mountains. So I uh, I'm a, an avid um, nature lover, backpacker, hiker, and so any excuse I get, I'll go outside. And um, I haven't been able to get to the mountains this year, for, mostly because of working and teaching and whatnot. And I figured this, you know, we're in late September, sort of touch and go, but maybe the last chance to get up to the mountains and go camping before the snow and the, some of the roads close and Tioga Pass up in Yosemite. And so I, um, in the spur of the moment, Friday morning, decided to go camp, camping for the weekend, backpacking. So I threw my stuff in my backpack uh, somewhat hastily because I was eager to get up there before sunset. And uh, so I get to the park and I get my wilderness permit and go up to just a short mile or so hike in, two miles in, uh, to this beautiful lake. And um, it's just past the full moon. So I was camping underneath Mount Hoffman, which is about 10,800 foot beautiful peak, as some of you may know. And uh, I thought I'd go for a full moon hike to the top. So, because the moon was pretty bright, and it was, it was about 1,500 foot climb, but not too difficult. It was steep, but doable. And um, I happened to bump into some uh, some young men who were out backpacking for the first time, and they got excited by this idea of the full moon hike. So they, a couple of them came along for the ride, and they, not knowing how difficult the hike was, um, and how it was, it was, it was probably about 10 o'clock at night. And it was really windy and starting to get cold, close to freezing. Um, anyway, we get about two-thirds of the way up, and one of the, the men uh, gets, is really exhausted from his backpacking that day and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop, and why don't you two go to the top? So we made a plan. We made sure he was warm and had food and stuff, and so he was protected from the elements, and the two of us legged it to the top to see the... Stunning views, and from the top of the mountain, you could still see the the burning fires from the from the Yosemite fire on the eastern side, on the western side, um, which was quite uh, stunning. I mean, mostly fading out, but still smoking and little embers here and there. And so we're coming back down, and uh, we were having trouble locating our dear friend. Um, we knew roughly where he was, but um, anyway, we eventually found him, and. Um, he was uh, really freaked out with cold and was shaking and had never been out backpacking before, never really been out. <laughs> 10,000 foot up a mountain alone, hearing, you know, and he lives in, where does he live? He lived in um, LA, I think. <laughs> so not quite used to the sounds and worried about bears and cougars and things like that. And, so anyway, so he was having, by the time we got to him, he was having a full-blown panic attack. <laughs> so fortunately, I'm quite familiar with panic attacks, and quite I, I know how to work with people when they're in panic. So I sat him down, and I put my hands on his shoulders, I looked him in the eyes, and I said, look at me, look at me, breathe with me, breathe with me, just breathe. And we started breathing slowly, and told him to put his feet on the ground, his feet in the ground, feel your feet, feel your breath. And I had his friend sit, kind of bear hug him from behind. So, and I said, feel into your friend, feel into the warmth. 
imagine something, tell me something that you really long for. And he says, my warm bed. <laughs> I said, okay, imagine you're in your warm bed. Breathe. And he started panicking. Breathe, breathe, calming down, calming down. And after about half an hour, he slowly got down to, you know, where he could stand. He couldn't, and then he started crawling down the mountain because he was afraid to stand. And eventually, he kind of gathered himself. And anyhow, it all worked out fine. We got him down, got him into bed, and always good. And I thought, you know, you never know when your practice is going to come in handy. <laughs> you know, we, we, we take for granted the practice of meditation and breathing and, and whatnot, and, and yet it's in, in those kind of situations, it's so profound. When you actually get someone to just stay right here, like, look at me, stay here, this moment, this breath, feel your feet, you're here, you're surrounded by friends, breathe, and just this, and then this over, over time that breath works through, cuts through, melts the fear and the anxiety. So I went to visit him the next morning just to see how he's doing, and, and his friend said, wow, they were he was lucky to find someone like you on the mountain. <laughs> so, I have other stories which I'll tell you later about the backpacking, which, um, uh, the situation was a little reversed, I have to say, to my great humility. Um, but that's for the, I'll say that a little later. So, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, the, the main association with mindfulness is attention. And it's true that, uh, you know, an important component of mindfulness is attending, attending being attentive to what's here, being attentive to what's happening, knowing what's happening with a clear awareness, clear attention. But it's also, it's not just about attention. We have to understand it in a, in a broader context. Because it also, you know, if the Buddha was teaching it in the context of the Eightfold Path, in the context of a whole path of awakening. And so often, and I hear this again and again, the, the, in, the interpretation that many people have about mindfulness is it, is it leads to passivity. That we're watching, that we're noticing, and we're observing, and we're being with, and we're allowing, and we're a doormat, or something non-responsive and non-acting. And, uh, but for the Buddha, it was clearly in the context of a much more dynamic view of practice. So, uh, to give an example of this, so I was, uh, so that night after I put this guy to bed, <laughs> I went to my camp spot, which is I found this little ledge um, overlooking this beautiful valley from half dome on one side and Mount Dana on the other side, beautiful 180-degree view. And it was kind of a slightly precarious ledge, but I liked nice views, and um, I wanted to see the sunrise. So I decided not to sleep with my tent, even though it was a little cold. Um, and I've, and I, so I got my bag, and I actually didn't get my bag, because I realized my zip didn't work on my bag. And um, I, t I had a very flimsy old bag, and so I sort of wrapped it around me like a blanket, but because it was windy, it didn't really work so well, so I was kind of freezing. I was, but I was very attached to this morning view 
of the sunrise <laughs> hitting Half Dome and all the various mountains that I like to see. And so I, you know, I'd kind of call up and, you know, you know how you do when you can, you're camping, you're hiding every little air pocket and every little breeze that's coming in. And, um, and I'd get little bits of sleep here and there. And then about three, three to four in the morning, I was just, it was just hopeless. It's just wind. And it's like, and the thought came, just put your tent up. Just get in the tent. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> right. Wise, wise discernment leads to wise action. And this is what the Buddha is teaching about. We, we see what's happening. In this case, my, my attachment to this view of having this experience. And then get over it. <laughs> it's not what's happening. You're freezing. You get hypothermia. Go in your sleeping bag. Go in your tent. So anyway, so I did. Um, so there's times when we can when we can act on that discernment. Many times, in fact, much of the practice is about cultivating and, and discerning what brings about wholesome states of mind, what brings about happiness. But of course, there are many other times when we can't take action with the the things that we're facing are out of our control, beyond our means to influence in some way, whether it's whether it's a larger political economic situation or just could it could even be a personal situation, but out of our control. I was hiking the next day. I was on an eight mile hike and um I was wearing these <laughs> I was wearing these really old hiking boots. I'm not really sounding like this this great wilderness trip leader <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I, and you'll hear more as the trip goes on. I'm not going to go hiking with this guy. <laughs> Anyhow, that aside, um, I was wearing, this is the, the last time I was wearing these hiking boots, and, um, <laughs> and I got innumerable blisters um, from my very comfortable, very worn-in boots that somehow don't seem to protect from blisters. And so in that situation, I was hiking from A to B, and I had to get to this camp to meet some people I was planned to be with. And... And there was a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain. My ankle was playing out, my knee was playing out, the blisters were And nothing to do. I'm five miles down the trail and uh, put as much moleskin and band-aids and whatever else I could find. And then you just deal with the pain, just like in life, right? With your physical injury, chronic illness, you're grieving somebody. Right? There's, there's only so much we can do. And then we, when we draw on that, capacity of equanimity that comes from the practice of mindfulness, the practice, the, the, the dedication of being with. Yeah. So the so practice has both sides or both uh, ends of the spectrum that does have this profound quality of being with, resting in being, allowing, resting in awareness and allowing things to be as they are. And there's also the dynamic element So, as I said, in, in the Buddhist teachings, uh, in the Eightfold Path, mindfulness is embedded within the, the, the threefold way of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Mindfulness comes in the, the, the basket of, of meditation, supported by the, our efforts, supported by concentration. We develop this, this lucid awareness, this, this clarity of knowing, that illuminates what's happening, illuminates ourselves, illuminates who we are. And most importantly for the Buddha, it illuminates why we struggle, why we have stress, why we suffer, 
why we create our own distress, why we go to the mountains and cause ourselves hardship, or whatever else we choose to do for fun. It's, it's, the, it's the capacity to, to know our mind and to, to see, to examine our self-talk, to examine the way that we are cruel to ourselves or harsh with ourselves or belittling or dismissive or rejecting. Does that sound familiar? Any critics in the room? Inner critics, outer critics? Right? So we, we use that quality of mindfulness to, to, to know the difference between a discerning thought and a judging thought an evaluation versus uh, belittling. Right? Could be same data, different response, different consequence. When we have wise understanding, we understand about uh, karma. We understand how our actions bear fruit. When we practice, it bears fruit. When we don't practice, it bears fruit. When we're unskillful, when we're unkind, when we're self-centered, it has a certain fruit, when we're generous, when we're kind, when we're caring, it has a certain fruit. So with our wise understanding, so the the meditation is really in support of clarity of understanding of you. What brings happiness? Why am I suffering? Why am I here tonight? What's causing me to look inside myself? Why, with all the conditions that I have in my life, am am I unhappy? Why, why do I leave peace? Anybody stay peaceful from this, when you woke up this morning to now? Anybody stay serenely at peace? No, right? Well, what's going on? <laughs> Something's happening. Right? We want to get curious. How come, you know, it's a beautiful day, an exquisite day. What, what rubs us? What takes away that sense of ease or well-being? Right? We're well-fed, it's safe. It's a beautiful day, but we suffer, torment ourselves with our fears and our worries and our projections and our anxieties and our self-worth issues and mm, worrying about whether Larry Elson might actually win the America's (laughs) Cup and feeling contraction at the comeback or delight at the comeback, who knows. understand our actions have consequences. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the dialogue uh, around Syria these last few weeks, in contrast to the dialogue that happened post 9-11. You know, the dialogue or lack of going into Afghanistan. And the, 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 um, the awareness around the consequences of those actions of bombing, of killing innocent people. So when we understand there's more, there's more discernment, there's wiser action, hopefully, in this case politically. But the Buddha said there's, there's right mindfulness and then there's not right mindfulness, or unwise attention. And you might think, well, what do you mean there's, there's wrong mindfulness? I thought mindfulness was a good thing. What does it mean to have wrong mindfulness? Or unwise mindfulness is a better translation. So it would be mindfulness, it would be using that attention in the service uh, that causes suffering. So we can all use our attention in skillful ways or unskillful. 
And so we want to reflect on how we use our attention. Do we use it in, in a way to manipulate or to selfishly get what we want? You know, a thief and a burglar is very attentive, probably more mindful, you know, like if you think of a, a pickpocket, probably more mindful than most of us in here, right? or more attentive, you should say, I should say, but not necessarily mindful. Mindfulness really is, is only used in the context of serving uh, um, or supporting a, a wellness of being. So if our, if our attention is used for selfish means, in this case thieving, there's often there's a lot of contention around teaching the military about mindfulness. Right? Do we want to have better um, snipers? Do we want to have more accurate marksmen? So, so some of these questions are really, really uh, tricky. A friend of mine, Richard Miller, was um, who teaches Yoga Nidra, which is uh, very similar to a mindfulness practice from the yoga tradition, from the Kashmir Shaivism tradition, and um, <coughs> has found a very successful protocol to uh, teach um, Yoga Nidra, which is a deep form of meditative relaxation, to uh, veterans, especially combat veterans, from coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, but also for people um, going out to serve in active duty. And he had a meeting with some top brass in the Pentagon about his program, because they were seeing the research uh, was uh, very favorable. And um, and they and so they were grilling him. And they were asking him, why do you think this would be good for our soldiers to, get to, to do before uh, going into active duty? And his response was very interesting. He said, um, see if I can remember it accurately. He said, would you rather find out now whether someone can um, follow through with the orders, in this case, say, to kill, would you rather find out that they have the capacity to do that now or in the field? Because if they, if they find that out in the field, they put their whole uh, uh, colleagues, squadron, at risk. And so what he was basically communicating was when you teach people self-awareness, they can, they can more accurately discern their capabilities, their capacities. And so, actually, uh, it's a life-saving practice for those people to know their capacity. So, in the end, in the end they ended up uh, uh, using his programs. Um, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a very tricky area. Um, you know, another, another piece of data that he was using was that um, people in active service who had some kind of practice like that had much better emotional self-regulation and therefore much less likely to be uh, emotionally reactive. And so much, so, much, so much bloodshed has been caused by um, people in active service who you know, are so traumatized and triggered and so much fear running, um, acting out in ways that are incredibly harmful. 
So the more people actually have that capacity to work with their own fear and anger, the less uh, bloodshed there is. So it's, it's tricky. You know? um, I don't know what the Buddha would say about that in context of right mindfulness or mindfulness, but if you look at it in the context of um, what is relieving suffering, all beings are suffering, and those in people serving active duty, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, or wherever, there are intense states of suffering. And I don't, I'm not positing a position one way or the other, but I'm just putting it out as a reflection. So another example of, of someone um, practicing unwise mindfulness would be someone who's more on the sociopathic spectrum, who uses that skilled attention to manipulate. So what, what other examples can you think of that would, that would be the utilizing of this quality of attention that would fall in the category of unwise mindfulness? Yes, at the back. Advertising. Advertising. Right. Say, say more. Uh huh. Right. So advertising or that spectrum of using that attention in a way to cultivate more greed or desire or longing or wanting. Yeah. Could be so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Advertising Marlboros. What else? And on a, more, on a more personal level, what things come to mind? Yes. Trying to get friendships for status or. Uh huh. Trying to get friendships for status. Trying to use that skilled attention to social gain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Influencing someone's will. Mm-hmm. You want to say more about that? Well, if you know someone is going to leave something behind. Oh, someone's will, as in as in their estate. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I was thinking mental will. <laughs> I am a really good cause for <laughs> a bequest. <laughs> uh huh. Yep. There's a lot of that going on. A lot of. Um, Elder abuse around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for seduction. For seduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a whole spectrum of ways that we can use our attention to get our own way, to be self-serving. So, from the other side of things, so if you think about when, when mi- mindful awareness is established, when you're feeling that sense of clarity, attentiveness, present. So call, that, call, call, a, call a moment or a situation to mind. Maybe it was even in the last meditation, or maybe even right now or a moment at work, or with your family, or out in nature, where you felt that sense of 
you were connected with a quality of a mindful awareness. And notice and you reflect on what other qualities are present when you're when you're in that place. When you're in that clarity of awareness. Was that a hand back there? Yeah. No. Safety. Safety. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like you feel safe? Yeah. Or it feels safe? Uh-huh. Both. Like a safe refuge? Uh huh. The observation feels unfiltered and honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just safe from the so the the, the meta phrase. You know, I did that thing at the end of the sitting, that little short loving kindness practice. The the first meta phrase in the text is, "May I be safe from inner and outer harm." So be safe from our own inner torments. Yeah. What else? What qualities come together with mindfulness? I feel like I'm just running on all, on, like all cylinders. Like I'm just calm and I'm <laughs> You're in the zone. <laughs> She's in the zone. She's popping on all cylinders. You look pretty alive. <laughs> yeah. You lose track of time. You lose track of time. Uh-huh. So you enter a more timeless. You step out of the linear mode. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, with the cap. Uh huh. Not thinking or less thinking. Mm-hmm. More intuitive. Uh huh. All right. Uh, maybe there's a sense of accuracy of what I'm communicating. Uh huh. An accuracy of what you're communicating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else? Yes. Like a cohesion, like things um, being in order without me having to. Mm. Things just sort of come together and feel very natural about it, being part of it instead of having to be the one who manipulates it to bring it to order. It's already there. So you're noticing a cohesion in the outer environment? Outer and inner. And inner. Mm -hmm. Cohesiveness. Uh Yeah. Yes. Gina. So, so the capacity of clarity to see the cohesion. So it sounds like a, the Homo sapiens sapien, the self-knowing, the knowing of the clarity. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, what else? This is really fascinating to hear at the back. Yes. Uh, the absence of desire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And for some people, there could be desire just seen clearly in mindfulness. But I, but I hear what you're saying. You're just pointing to a deeper level of mm, non-identified with desire. I would I would say, yeah. But it's a sense of, uh, of happiness or inner joy, sort of being at peace with what is. Sense of happiness and joy, being at peace with what is, so not fighting with what is. What we think about as a heartful quality rather than just, just a mm. mm-hmm. 
So there's a heartfulness in, in, in the quality of presence. Mm-hmm. A lightness, yeah. So as you're hearing these things, I, I mean, we're evoking these qualities in the room. So I, I, I want you to kind of, as, you, as people speak, right, people are, we, we, we have a both unique and shared collective experience. And so uh, just notice what gets, what's getting evoked in your own body or being as you hear. Because every time I hear something, I go, oh yeah, I know that. I, that that's, I have that, that flavor's present sometimes. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, that cohesion. Oh yeah, that, that's kindness. Oh yeah, that's present too. And what else? Yeah. So there's a spontaneity, yeah, and then liveness. It looks like, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what else? Intuitiveness, yes. Less delusional. Less delusional, <laughs> absolutamente. <laughs> Less delusional, yeah. There's more clarity. There's more wisdom. So, you know, and just again, and then the, what I love about that model of the Eightfold Path, the, the mindfulness, the meditative qualities, the meditative awareness leads to wisdom, understanding, wise understanding, wise you, wisdom of knowing what's true. And then out of that understanding arises uh, the movement into into the world, into life, into action. We move so that uh, what arises out of understanding is our motivation. When we when we become clearer, and we understand things have consequences that we're connected. When we understand suffering, the causes of suffering, happiness, and the causes of su- happiness, it changes our motivation. We st- we want to move in a way that causes well-being that causes peace, that causes kindness and clarity and connection. And that informs our, our action, that motivation informs our actions. Which in the Eightfold Path is the practice of, um, uh, of, of ethical conduct, of acting in a way that's non-harming, acting in a way with, that, and with our speech, and speaking in a way that's truthful and kind and harmonious. And in our work, in, in, our, in, the, in the physical reality, choosing things that bring about life, generation, nourishment. <coughs> so much bigger than just attention, right? I mean, you see that it, 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 mindfulness is said in Buddhist psychology is it pulls, it gathers other wholesome qualities to it, whether it's clarity or <coughs> kindness or cohesion, or whatever else, a hand in the back. But what? Parents. Parents. Mummies and daddies. Oh yeah, those, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
job done, but it doesn't support um, our lives. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness is giving up the controlling and allowing things to be. Yeah, I think that's that's a primary foundation of it. And out, and out of and out of that, as you were speaking to, whether it's wise parenting or teaching or not acting or um, ruling through fear. Yeah. Yeah, so the point about uh, mindfulness awakening or enlivening the five senses in some ways, drawing them. Okay, last comment, and I'm going to... Gratitude. gratitude, right. So yeah, beautiful. some beautiful heart qualities arise out of that presence. Gratitude, appreciation. You know, when we're living in more in the sensory realm, there's just there's more wonder, there's more delight and forgiveness. And as I was as reflecting on this material today, you know, because I, I originally started the original th- title of the talk was mindfulness as action or mindfulness as a support for action, and I started reflecting on the qualities mindfulness draws in, and often, and the first ones that came to mind, maybe it's because of my own dharma conditioning, were more the passive receptive qualities. Um, so for example, when, we're, when mindfulness is established, there's more of a quality of restraint. There's a restraint in the restraint in that which will lead to suffering. So because there's more, there's more capacity to pause and to, and to slow down before reacting, you know, before we hit that descend button on our email, because someone's pissed us off and, you know, boss said something that was belittling or something, you know, who knows, in many ways we can get slighted through email, through misunderstanding some, some text. And it's the pause that, that before we hit the send button, oh, maybe I should just breathe for a few minutes. <laughs> maybe I should just let this sit there and let's sit that in my outbox for half an hour and just see how it all, oh, maybe let's give me 24 hours and, you know, and we look at the next day, we go, God, what was I thinking? I can't believe I was going to send that. And I had reply all on it too. Oh my God. <laughs> That's always a disaster. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually just got an email today from, I'm on a board, and, uh, and one person was, was talking about someone else uh, in a very dismissive way, and, 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 but, and sort of, was speaking in a way that you might do to a friend in a coffee shop, not through an email to reply all to the whole board. And I was horrified, you know, and that was clearly a case of someone not being mindful in their speech and practicing restraint and then the, the ripple of suffering, especially if that gets back to the person that it's about. 
So mindfulness also brings in the, uh, draws to it quality of patience. A tremendously helpful quality. I, I unfortunately do a lot of flying around to various venues to teach, and um, I find uh, flying is a great practice. It's a parami practice. Parami is a perfection. It's a parami practice of patience. <laughs> you know, it's the security lines or the, you know, in my case, I'm always behind the, in front of the crying babies. Um, that's my practice. I've come to, I've come to, I, and I, I kind of expect it to happen now. So if there's a couple of young families, I'm, mm, thank you for your great teachings. <laughs> and it's great, you know, and with mindfulness, there's, there's, there's that moment of like, ah, okay, this is, this is the teacher for this trip. Okay. She's one years old and she's having trouble with the, you know, the, the, the ear and the pressure changes. And, and without that, it's just reactivity and suffering and misery. And, and feeling self-pitiful or blaming or angry or, but with it there's, you know, and, and then it supports this other quality which is really key is the quality of non-identification where we're not so I, enmeshed and tied up with our stuff, with our story of, oh, it's, it's, it's spoiling my flight and I'm supposed to have a nice plane ride to New York and <laughs> it's their fault and it's, oh, terrible and poor me and, and there's just, you know, I mean, we can, we can, you know, feel pissed off, that's okay, we can feel angry, and, but if there's that quality of presence that can see that we're in that and that's just happening, then we're not caught. It's just emotions playing themselves out, samskaras, it's reactivities, it's tendencies playing themselves out, and it's not so bothersome. You know, we might not choose to have a baby screaming for five hours, but um, I remember this story. I was always struck by this story. It was when um, Matt Damon won an Oscar. I think it was in Goodwill Hunting, but maybe, I'm not sure which one actually. And um, he was being interviewed uh, a little while after he got the Oscar, and he said this very startling thing. He said, um, "I hope I didn't hurt anybody." to get this because it's just not worth it. So we were talking, someone said earlier about um, trying to get, um, get f f um, f using mindfulness to get ahead or with friends or social recognition. Or This is a great example. I hope I didn't step on anybody to get this Oscar because it's not worth it. And that's, I think it's a beautiful example of non-identification that he was, there's enough clarity in him not to be identified with this brass, gold, whatever it is, what they're made of, those Oscar, Oscar things. <laughs> and it also pulls in equanimity, which is kind of what I've been speaking to. You see how the, all these qualities are related. Gives us a capacity, like when I was hiking, to just hang in with difficulties. So, and, but there are times when that discernment, that, that knowing, that equanimity, that clarity does require action. So I'm going back to my hiking story. So I'd hiked about eight miles down this trail and um, because it was a very hasty trip, I hadn't really checked the weather. And, um, you know, it was sunny and I thought, you know, it's, I'm, 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 I had this view, I'm gonna get in before the snow. So I wasn't thinking snow and rain. 
And you remember it was really pouring with rain here on Saturday? Well, four hours later, it gets to the mountains and it tends to snow usually. So I was, it was about three in the afternoon and it started to drizzle. I was like, oh, it's pretty. I was sitting by a lake and I was watching all the hail making these patterns on the lake and how beautiful and isn't this great being up in the mountains. <laughs> so then I start walking and it kind of continues to rain, gets gray and darker and say, oh, this isn't looking so good, but anyhow. So and I had this very light windbreaker, not really a waterproof thing. I mean, it's sort of waterproof, but not really. Nothing's waterproof in lo- after a while unless it's, you know, plastic. And uh, so I get to camp, and I'm waiting for my friends to show up. Uh, and I'm in the middle of nowhere. There's me and one other guy who um, <laughs> ends up starting a fire in his tent to keep warm that night. Um, canvas tent, which was a whole other story. <laughs> so I'm, so, and then, so it starts to get really heavy rain, and I, my friend shows up, and I'm like, you know, I'm... Someone just told me that there's there's heavy snowfall coming down the pipe and coming, you know, coming. It's going to drop down to 24 degrees, and um, we should get out because we might get snowed in. And I got my car, and I would get snowed in. And but it was sort of getting that time. It was like two, it was another six miles with a backpack, and it was pouring rain. I thought, nah, it's, it's and then it's like this was a really great case of how do you stay present and not let the fear and the anxiety make the decision. The fear would have had me hike out in the pouring rain and it would have been quite a challenging hike. So I decided to stay um, uh, with, with these two friends and, uh, and by that time pretty much everything is wet. You know, my gear, my down jacket, you know, warm gear, sleeping bags damp. And my, the, tent I, the tent I have is really a summer, summer tent. It's very lightweight. <laughs> I mean, it's a three-season tent, but it's, 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 you know, it's not what you want in the snow and the rain. And uh, so we eat, and, and I start shivering. I start just getting really cold, because I've got nothing warm. No, no, you know, I've, got, I've not got down, which stays warm in the wet, but it's wet. And, um, and so I'm thinking, well, this is, the tables are really turned, because last night I was rescuing somebody in the panic attack, and I was starting to get really anxious. And um, mostly about not being able to get warm in my tent. It's a very unsatisfying feeling. Um, so I go to bed early, wrap myself up, and I'm just freezing and shaking. And uh, so I have to put my wilderness tail between my legs. I get up, go find my friends, who directed this temporary top as if for a kitchen. I said, I'm really cold, I, n- I need help. And so one of them gave me their down jackets, and that helped a little bit, kind of calm my nervous system down. But I realized I couldn't see from my tent. My tent was so um, exposed to the elements and, uh, and that everything was just damp. So I had to sleep with them in, in this, we all squashed into this little tent, which was very cozy. It was a three-person tent, so it was fine, actually. Um, but it was just a great lesson in, in, in you know, humility and discernment and staying steady and, and thinking, what's the, what's the wise decision? And am I... You know, my, if I'd let my ego self run the show, I would have stuck in my tent and toughed it out, <laughs> frozen to death, <laughs> or got hypothermia or something. Versus, oh, what's the situation here? Oh, I'm cold, I'm wet, I can do something more creative about this. And then in the end, it turned out to be kind of a fun adventure. And the tent was, you know, we had a little igloo in the morning, and um, fortunately, it wasn't too heavy a snowfall. And, it was actually very beautiful in the morning, and there was a clear sky, and um, everything was frozen, but uh, we weren't. And 
It was a beautiful day, and a bear came sniffing around the tent, the, the, the campsite, and it was very beautiful. So all's well as the end well, and I've now thrown my boots away and um, doing a lot of shopping at REI. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think of uh, one of my favorite stories of the Buddha, uh, and an example of his, um, in a way, his life was very dynamic, even though he was a meditator and a mystic and a teacher. He, he was very active in creating teachings and this body of students and um, traveling and walking the, the, the plains of northern India and the, the forests for 45 years. And one story that I particularly am fond of is um, he was from uh, the kingdom of... My Indian history is going to go out the window here. Um, he, was, he mostly was living in the kingdom of Magadha, but he was born in the kingdom of up north somewhere uh, on the Nepalese border, um, and uh, these these two kingdoms, northern India at the time where the Buddha was very feudal and um, a lot of war, a lot of uh, ongoing wars, and a lot of bloodshed, and um, anyhow, so uh, so at some point during the Buddha's uh, life after he was enlightened, he'd heard that you know, he, he was he was in. He had a lot of um, uh, students who were from the, the court, and um, princes and kings and queens and whatnot, and so he would often give a lot of advice and uh, try and soothe out uh, conflicts and uh, through diplomacy. And anyhow, uh, this, uh, the, the, the king of Magadha was particularly um, uh, uh, a bit of a warlord, and he decided to go uh, to war with the kingdom the Buddha was born from, where many of his family and friends and his friends were, often, were also from the from the princely caste. So, um, so uh, when the Buddha heard that the, the king was marching out, he was sat. He found a he sat by an old dead tree, in in by the roadside. And uh, when the king with his army went past, the, he had the army stop, and the king got down off his horse and to the Buddha and paid his respects and said, why are you sitting by this old dead tree? And the Buddha said, I'm sorry, it touches me. He said, this, this tree is in the land of my home. And this is dear to me. And I sit here as a, as a request to stop the bloodshed. And the king was so moved by his, his uh, presence and his wish that the king had deceased his march and turned back, and war was averted. And it happened actually a second time, um, similar set of circumstances, and the Buddha again sat by the roadside, and this time the Buddha, the, the king ignored the Buddha's wish, and there was great bloodshed. But what struck me is, is his... Um, that he wasn't just sitting around in the forest navel-gazing. That mindfulness practice, that's not the point. The point is to take this practice out, that to use this clarity, awareness, discernment, compassion, kindness, to take, to take steps in a way that relieves suffering ourselves, our loved ones, our community, our country, however and wherever it manifests. The last story I'll leave you with, which is a similar kind of, is a more contemporary example. So, um, my first teacher 
Christopher, first Vipassana teacher, Christopher Titmus. I'd study with him every year in Bodhgaya for many years in India, where the Buddha uh, attained his awakening. And uh, the, the temple there is very sim- was a very simple complex of, of, old, of old buildings and one large stupa. And um, the one year the Sri Lankan government, um, Buddhist government, had decided to, uh, to, to take better care of the temple and particularly the Bodhi tree, which was a descendant of the tree that the Buddha was supposed to attain uh, enlightenment under. So in their sort of good-hearted uh, wishes, they wanted to protect the tree, so they erected a, um, a gold-plated fence around the tree, um, quite high and um, uh, very incongruous to the idea of awakening and freedom. You <laughs> put this basically gold prison bars around the tree. <laughs> and this is, in, this is in Bihar, which is the poorest state. This is the poorest area in the poorest state in India. It's an incredible amount of poverty. And so, and you erect a million dollar gold fence around this tree, what's going to happen? You're going to get bandits want to steal it. So they had to have a 24-hour armed guard stationed at the temple <laughs> to protect the gold bars. <laughs> <laughs> the gold. Um, so the whole thing was quite farcical. And uh, before they they erected it and inaugurated it, the the Sri Lankan president came out to visit and give his blessing and whatnot. And there was a lot of security, as there often is in these situations. And so he was surrounded by military and guards. And and Christopher had been as lover of this particular village and, and the Buddha and 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 uh, people there and was horrified and so um, he was determined to have his you know, try and kind of in a way do what the Buddha did and intervene and and and, and say can, can please come to your senses and put that money to building schools or hospitals or something not just a, a fence that people want to steal and so you know there's a big procession there's a lot of military around and. Somehow, Christopher just meanders his way through and manages to get through all the guards with their rifles and stands right in front of the president and says, you know, you know, please, can you change your actions? Can you put this money to better use? Can you... And, you know, didn't uh, get his way. But, this, again, that the principle of, of, of using that clarity and discernment and speaking one's truth, standing up, to what's perceived as uh, injustice or unskillfulness. So, um, just some reflections for you as I wrap up here. So, really this is just the beginning conversation of, of how, to, how to understand mindfulness in a broader context, in the context of the Eightfold Path, but also in the context of how it leads to, how it supports wise action, wise engagement, wise um, discernment, which leads to uh, moving more skillfully in the world. And so, a couple of reflections for you. Um, In what ways does mindful awareness inform your actions? In what ways does your practice of mindfulness inform your actions? And the second reflection is, uh, what are you seeing with mindfulness uh, that requires action that you are not taking action upon? What are, what are you discerning and yet not taking action? Just the reflections for the week.
So next week um, I'll be back here, and uh, next week it's the beginning of uh, uh, Earth Care Week. So in the last teacher meeting, International Buddhist Teacher Meeting we had here, um, we had a, 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 a session on climate change, and there was um, desire in the community to, to begin to start speaking much more directly about the climate crisis. And so um, I believe, is this right, Sean? Do we have information about Earth Care Week? Do we have any of those flyers? No. So next week I'm going to give a, a talk about um, climate change and Buddhist relationship response to what's happening ecologically, and we'll have information and resources. So, so what the teacher International Buddhist Teacher Group decided to do was we would dedicate the first week in October for raising awareness around these issues and our, and, and our response as a Buddhist community to the climate crisis. And uh, so there'll be information and handouts and whatnot um, next week. So I hope you can come and have a wonderful week. Blessings on your practice in your week. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Mark. I'm Ron. Hi, Hi Ron.